Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of John today, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll read again the passage we have read thus far. We are in the middle of a series on the twelve. Some would call them disciples, some call them apostles, simply call them the twelve. And we are spending the summer considering the lives of these men and their implications, those lives and their implications for us as we gather together this morning are important. So we ask you to read along with us. Today we will consider the life of the Apostle John. John is the fourth of the twelve that we are considering and uh, we will contemplate his life. Let me read in John chapter 1 beginning in verse 35 a few verses that we have read before but we will read them again. The next day again John and this John is not John the apostle but rather John the baptizer John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what are you seeking? And they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying? He said to them come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now we have read this passage before in the context of Peter's life. Obviously, this passage introduces us to Peter, but it also introduces us to John, not John the Baptist, but rather John the Apostle. Look again, verse 37. Uh, they followed Jesus. They, obviously, is a reference to these two disciples of John the Baptist. Now, one of those two disciples is named in this paragraph. And that is Andrew, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. But you'll notice there is a conspicuous absence of the name of the second man. Now that is a literary uh, characteristic of this gospel. John, the, the apostle, John, one of the twelve, John, the man that we are focusing on this morning, writes this gospel, but he never mentions his own name, ever. If you read the Apostle Paul's letters, for instance, 13 letters, in every one of those except one, the very first sentence he identifies himself, Paul. And then he supplies some uh, amplification or explanation of his life or his circumstance, etc. Paul's approach is to identify himself. That would be customary in letters of antiquity, to identify yourself in the very opening sentence, or certainly the opening paragraph. But in John's gospel, he does not do that. 
never mentions himself by name. However, he uses a phrase repeatedly, and we shall see it later, and that is he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. So we'll see that phrase again and again. But I want to suggest to you that from the jump in John chapter 1, he has identified himself as an early follower, in fact, initial follower of Jesus Christ. So what do we know of John? So we'll highlight a few things that I think will be helpful, and then we'll consider a couple of passages to think deeply about the implications of John's life for ours. So who was John? Well, we know he is the brother of James, as we said a week ago, considering James. He is the brother of James, John is, and he is one of three who comprises Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Those three names lead the lists of every list of the 12, Peter, James, and John. Also, because we said this about his brother last week, he is a son of Zebedee. Zebedee. We don't know exactly who Zebedee was, except that he apparently is a man of prominence. He apparently has a large commercial fishing business, and I would suggest to you he is a prominent Galilean businessman. We also know that John, in this case, is a former disciple of John the Baptist. We see that clearly here. He's one of the two who leaves John in order to follow Jesus. We also learned last week that Jesus nicknamed James and John sons of thunder, and this suggests a fiery disposition. All of the characteristics we could identify a week ago regarding James, we could make the same application here as regards John. We also know that he is known to the high priest. If you'll look at John chapter 18, verse 15. John chapter 18, verse 15. He is known to the high priest. Verse 15, this is uh, when Jesus is arrested, he is taken to the home of the high priest. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Again, he is anonymous, but this is consistent with John's description of himself. He always leaves himself anonymous. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. So John the apostle, John, one of the twelve, is known to the high priest, so much so that he has access to the courtyard of the high priest where this initial interrogation and subsequent uh, arrest is going to take place. So that means that Jesus, rather John, is an eyewitness to the Jewish component of the trial of Jesus. He is an eyewitness. He, he is known to the high priest. He therefore has access to the courtyard. John and Peter, Peter because he knows John, John because he knows the high priest, have access to that courtyard. So how do we know what happened there? Because there were two of the 12 who were there. The rest were scattered. 
The rest are gone. The rest have disappeared into the night as a result of the arrest of Jesus. But Peter and John are there. John is an eyewitness to the Jewish trial of Jesus, which means that he would have seen Jesus flogged, whipped by the high priest soldiers, and he would have seen Jesus bound and, if you will, remanded over to the Roman authorities by daybreak. John would have been an eyewitness to that. We also know that John is an eyewitness to the crucifixion. And we know that no other disciple is named. So in this case, Peter is an eyewitness to the arrest. Peter is an eyewitness to the Jewish trial. But as a result of his three times denial of Jesus, he flees in shame and is no longer an eyewitness to the subsequent crucifixion of Jesus. Or at least he is not recorded as being there. But John, on the other hand, is. Consider John 19. John chapter 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus remands, if you will, his own mother into the care of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's not only an eyewitness to the crucifixion, he is the caretaker for the mother of Jesus following the crucifixion. He is also the apostle that we know the most about. He's not the, the most prominent apostle, because that would be Peter. But we know the most about John for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that he is the author of five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Technical things here. Revelation does not have an S on the end of it. It's a public service announcement. Several things annoy me. That annoys me. It suggests you don't read the Bible. You just listen to people talk about the Bible. There's no S on the end of Revelation. There's only one Revelation, not multiple. So there's only one. Now back to previously scheduled programming. He's the author of five New Testament books, which means that we know an awful lot about him. Only Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, which, by the way, comprises the largest section of the Bible attributed to one man, Luke-Acts. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters, but because they are shorter, there are fewer words, and therefore Luke writes more letters than Paul. Letters, meaning physical letters, more words. Luke and Paul obviously author more of the New Testament than John, but John authors a very significant portion as a result, we know more about him than we know about any other disciple. Also, we would say that early church historians tell us that he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. You'll recall, as I've said before, 
The Bible does not record the death of any of the apostles except James. The death of James is recorded in the New Testament, and all of the other apostles' death are not recorded, recorded at all. But early church historians tell us, in fact, that all of these other apostles die a martyr's death. And there are various stories about how these men died. Almost all of them died outside of Israel. Almost all of them died proclaiming Christ to the nations. So almost all of them became, if you will, uh, ambassadors for Christ, missionaries for Christ, cross-culturally. So we are in a good standing when we proclaim Christ in the same fashion. John himself proclaims Christ uh, cross-culturally because he eventually, according to early church history, becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus. You'll recall that church was started by the apostle Paul. So stay with me here. Paul starts a church in Ephesus, but because Paul is not a pastor that stays, he's a planter of churches who plants a church and moves along. Eventually that church in Ephesus, one of the world's great cities of its day, would have had to eventually call a pastor of some kind. And early church historians tell us that one of those pastors was the apostle John. And it was from the church at Ephesus that he is ultimately exiled to an island off the coast of what today is modern Turkey. Southwestern Turkey is where Ephesus is located. So he is pastoring in today what is called Turkey, then called Asia Minor. He he was pastoring there and then exiled to a, if you will, a penal colony which was located on an island. If you go there today to the island of Patmos, you can see a cave that reportedly, by the way, all the eyewitnesses are gone. Nobody kept records. It's just another prisoner. But you can go to the Isle of Patmos and see a cave that reportedly the apostle John lived in. And you will find it to be particularly harsh. So John is exiled to Patmos under Roman persecution from his pastoral assignment at Ephesus. And then lastly, I would simply say he is the longest living of all the apostles. Again, we are indebted to early church history, but the suggestion is that all of the other men die prior to John and that John writes the book of Revelation in the last decade and in fact, even perhaps near the end of the last decade of the first century. Many historians date the writing of the book of Revelation at approximately 97 to 99 A.D. No other apostles are living at that time except John. And there is no record of the exact date of his own death. But we know that he is the longest living of all the apostles. So what can the life of John teach us today? Well, there is much to say and not nearly enough time to say it. So I have simply chosen two things to highlight. I want to suggest that, first of all, the life of John can teach us that the battle between ambition and humility must be fought to the death. The battle between ambition and humility must be fought to the death. And for this, I would call your attention to Mark chapter 9. 
Mark chapter 9. I want you to note what happens in Mark's gospel in chapter 9. It's not a small thing, uh, but it, it matters much as we contemplate the implications for our own lives today. <coughs> You'll notice in verse 2, Mark chapter 9, that Mark records an experience that we have already highlighted because it features Peter and James, two apostles we've already considered. This is the experience of transfiguration. Now, maybe that word is a challenge to some of you, so I'll take a moment. Jesus, of course, (coughs) is the Son of God, and as the Son of God in heaven, does not have human features. Jesus is not six feet tall. He's not five foot eight. He's not six foot four. Doesn't have human features. He is the Son of God, and the God of gods is spirit. But Philippians 2 tells us he lays aside his glory and he robes himself with humanity. So he becomes a man in the form of an infant born in the womb of a woman named Mary. And then grows to adulthood. The book of Isaiah tells us that he is not a man that we would immediately stop and look at. So he's not exceptionally attractive. He's not just innately handsome. He is not cut or buff. He is not tall, dark, and anything. He's he's nothing that we would stop and say, that that's an impressive man, or that's an extraordinary man, or that's a man I want to get to know, or talk to, or whatever. There, the, the book of Isaiah tells us that he is not a man like that. He's just a man. He's just an average man. He's an ordinary man. That's all we know about him. There is no picture. Invariably, Hollywood makes him look a certain way, and I'm not going to argue with that, because I would suggest that imprint is burned on most people's Uh, hard drives, and it would be a waste of time. But I would assure you that is a Hollywood portrait. That is not a biblical portrait. So Jesus, if we are dark-skinned, dark-haired, because those would be the features that would be typical of his uh, experience, his earthly experience, he could look like any other man. That being the case, you'll note that he in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, he is transfigured, which means that for a moment, perhaps several moments, lingering moments, we don't know exactly how long, this human veil that covers his true glory is removed. And that's what happens. And immediately, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, witness the transfiguration of Jesus. His his glory is allowed to shine through for a moment. Here it is, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before him, them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Whiter than any white you would know. And there appeared to them Elijah 
with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So it's, it's not only that we see Jesus completely transfigured in white light, but Elijah shows up, Moses shows up, and they're talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. As we've mentioned before, some people, when they're terrified, shut down. But some people, when they're terrified, talk even more. Peter's one of those guys. I don't know what to say, so, Lord, let's just build some tabernacles for all three of you guys. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. All right, so we can only imagine what this experience would be like. But it's Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. I don't know. But I'm assuming that if this afternoon you have an experience with Peter, Elijah, and Moses, you're going to come back and you're going to tell us all about it. In fact... You're going to be insufferable. We're going to get so sick of you telling us how important you are because you got to see Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. You are going to be one proud, arrogant man because you had the unique privilege that in this case was only allowed with two other people. And those other nine guys who were at the bottom of the mountain, didn't get to come, weren't special. But you were. You're special. But you'll notice what Mark says in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They don't understand. What, do you, what does he mean by rising from the dead? And they ask him, why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Clearly a reference to John the Baptist, who fulfilled prophecy of the coming of Elijah. Now, in Mark's gospel, the very next thing that happens is Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. The nine disciples who are left at the foot of the mountain, who don't get to go up to see the transfiguration, are busy trying to cast out a demon with an un, a boy with an unclean spirit. They can't do it. The father appeals to Jesus. What's the matter with your disciples? They can't do this. Jesus takes care of this. And all of that occurs there. Then verse 30, they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. Capernaum is his home base, is now his hometown. Doesn't live in Nazareth anymore, he lives in Capernaum. And so he's in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another 
about who was the greatest. Now stop here a moment. Why, why would 12 men be arguing about who was the greatest? Now you might say, well, that's just what men do. To which I would agree, by the way. But particularly men, where three of them have just seen Jesus transfigured and are, as we say, feeling it. Jesus comes off the mountain with these three guys and tells them, don't tell anyone. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. We don't have any record that they did, so we will assume that they didn't. But they do have a conversation with their co-laborers, the nine who didn't come up, about who's the greatest. And we do have the record in Scripture that James and John put their mother up to asking Jesus that they could sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. We do know that John is a very ambitious man. We do know that John has shown evidence here. He has the reputation as a son of thunder. He has the reputation, as we saw a week ago, as regards James, as being wanting to call down fire from heaven and burn up this Samaritan village who don't make a way for Jesus to spend the night. We do know that he gets to witness the Mount of Transfiguration experience, and he comes off the mountain and immediately begins to argue with his buddies about who's the greatest. This is a man who clearly has ambition. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's, that's not good. That's, that's not good. Well, I would suggest that it can be good. There is a holy, H-O-L-Y, ambition that God ordains and that God intends, and that God is interested in us pursuing. There is one more experience here in Mark chapter 9. Notice in verse 38, John said to him, meaning Jesus, this is the only record of John speaking in the the New Testament like this. So this, this This is a unique experience. Normally, Peter's doing the talking, and when Peter's not talking, then James is talking, or Andrew is talking, or Thomas is talking, but this is the only verse ascribed to John. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Why is that a problem? Because we are the... We are the in bunch. We're the holy crowd. We we are the people who hang out with the master. We we have the the credentials. He didn't have credentials because he's not following us. I remind you that this kind of ambition is typical of men, but it is not righteous. In fact, it is so unrighteous that John is going to change We'll show you this momentarily, but before we do, I want to show you how the Apostle Paul handles ambition himself. Uh, In Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, for those of you who have forgotten Paul's story, I, I just want to use it as an illustration. Paul tells us in his in his own words that he is zealous 
for the way of the Pharisees, that he is a persecutor of the church, that he is, uh, if you will, he's on the fast track in the, the uh, developmental side of being a, a young up-and-coming Pharisee. He tells us that he is uh, earning credibility with the other Pharisees, the older men, because of his zeal for the church. He's persecuting the church. And in fact, in Acts chapter 9, where he's actually converted, he's on his way to Damascus with letters of incarceration against Christians in Damascus. So he is he's a man who's driven by ambition. And yet, I want you to see how God changed Paul as an illustration of what God is about to do with John. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 and following. He uh, obviously is in prison as he writes this word to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That's the guard guarding the, the, the palace of the king, the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imperiment, my imprisonment rather, is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord of, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, verse 15, indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, stop there a moment. He says, I'm in prison. There are people around me who have become emboldened to preach the gospel. And some of them are doing so because they love me and they want to continue the ministry that God has temporarily taken away from me, preaching outside of the prison, because I'm in prison. So out of love for me, they continue the ministry, and I'm glad to hear that. But others, he says, take up this ministry of preaching out of rivalry hoping to, if you will, to afflict me in some way in my imprisonment. Apparently, they were contentious before Paul was imprisoned. And now they are pointing fingers, if you will, wagging their tongue at Paul and saying, ha, 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 you've been incarcerated and we're out here preaching and we're better than you or we're different than you or we're more blessed than you. Who knows all that's going on? The word rivalry can mean many things. But notice Paul's reaction. What then, verse 18? What then? How should I respond to this? What's my attitude about this? Some do it out of love. Some do it out of rivalry. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, does that sound like a proud man to you? Does that sound like a humble man to you? I assure you, this man has been transformed. This once strong, zealous persecutor of the church has been completely transformed by the gospel. The gospel has changed his life, and he knows that Christ is the only hope. (coughs) 
He knows that he is not the star of the show. He knows that he has a shelf life, that God intends his work, his life for a short time, and then he flies away. He knows that it's not about him, that it's not about his reputation. It's not about his comforts. It's not about his story or his life or his experience. Paul is anti-celebrity. And the same can be said of John, who is clearly pro-celebrity in Mark chapter 9. But he doesn't end up that way. Look at the book of Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 1. Now remember, this letter is written in the last decade of the first century. So roughly 97, 98 This letter written some 65 years after the death of Christ. John is an old man. John is on an island prison in a cave. Notice what he says. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, writing to A worldwide audience. An audience today some 20 centuries later. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Think about that phraseology. I'm your partner in tribulation and in the kingdom. I'm not first in the kingdom. I'm not a leader in the kingdom. I'm not a big deal in the kingdom. I'm not a celebrity in the kingdom. I'm just your brother. I'm just your partner. We walk together. We walk side by side. One not superior to the other. One not inferior to the other. We are brothers. We are partners. And in the patient endurance of living for Christ, following Christ. I I, I say this all the time to young preachers when I talk to them. Look, you want to come in and and you you want to just tear the church up. You just want to tell them how the cow ate the cabbage. Right is right, wrong is wrong, let's get right. That's good. By the way, that's good. That's what I'm going to say about, about John in just a minute. It's good. But don't forget that in the midst of all of that, you're talking to people who are not inferior. Don't be talking down to people. Don't be talking in such a way that that you have it all together. For crying out loud, you're 25 years old. You're 30 years old. You're 35 years old. You, you, You know a little. Maybe you know a lot, but you don't know it all. And I can tell you as a guy who's no longer 35, I don't know it all. And that kind of leadership is provocative. It draws clicks on social media. But it is not the kind of leadership you see in the Scripture from people who have walked with Christ for a long time. This full of bravado 
is characteristic of early John, but it is not characteristic of later John. What we find is that God, in his providential way, has led this man to understand that the battle between ambition and humility must be fought to the death. We hold these things in tension. We want to be ambitious for Christ. We want to accomplish things, do things, see things accomplished in such a way. But again, at some point, we don't get to decide how quickly those things happen. John appeals in verse 9 of chapter 1 to the patient endurance that is in Christ. The patient endurance. Let us learn to be humble with one another. To, to lead but not to drive. To, to lead but not to overtly push. Let us, let us learn to, to trust God and to trust His way and to trust His Word and to trust His Spirit. Let us learn that we're not the focus and that for some of us, we may die early like James and then for others, we may die late like his very brother, John. James, the first disciple to die. John, the last disciple to die. Brothers of the same family. And yet God has entirely different expectations for their lives. The battle between ambition and humility must be fought to the death. It is entirely appropriate to be ambitious. It is entirely inappropriate to be proud. And we have to get up every day and fight the good fight to make sure that we don't cross the line. God has called us to be servants. So in our ambition... Let us be servants. There's a second thing quickly, and that is that truth and love are not enemies, but are necessary for every believer. Truth and love are not enemies, but are necessary for every believer. Turn, if you will, to the epistles of John, in this case, 2 John. 2 John. You say, well, what chapter? There's only one. Second John. Verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Stop there a moment. Truth and love are not enemies. John has more to say about truth than any other writer of the New Testament. John uses the word truth 25 times in his gospel and 20 times in these letters. So a total of 45 times in his writings, John uses the word truth. This is a man that is committed to truth. Committed to truth. If you read 1 John, which we're not going to read in our entirety, there are five chapters, but we could, you would find that it is a series of tests. Tests. 
And we could summarize those three tests. There are three. Uh, the first is that you love one another. Secondly, that you have right doctrine and right behavior. And thirdly, that you possess the Holy Spirit. Those are the three tests of whether or not you know that you're a Christian. Do you believe the truth? Do you live the truth? And do you have the Holy Spirit? That is the writing of 1 John. The point is, two of those three are this point. That is, that truth and love are not enemies, but are necessary for every believer. Young John wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village. We saw it a week ago with his brother James. Lord, is now the time you want us to call down fire, burn these people up, because they have wrong doctrine. They don't understand the Messiah. They don't appreciate you. Do you want us to burn them up because their doctrine is wrong? Torch them. That's young John. But here we have older John who has a completely different approach. Look at verse 5, 2 John 5. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out in the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. So you'll notice here, in a span of five verses, he is weaving this narrative. And that narrative is, watch your doctrine, watch your relationships. Love one another, but don't love at any cost. Don't compromise truth in the pursuit of loving. Because here in 2 John, he warns us, there are people who will come in under the guise of love and guise of affection for you or others and say, well, they're kind, or they're so nice, or they're, they're so hospitable, or they're so polite, or whatever that impresses you. Hear me, if their doctrine is wrong, they are wrong. But that doesn't give you the license, young John, to call down fire and burn them up. The notion that somehow the solution is to torch everybody who doesn't agree with your doctrine is anti-biblical. It's anti-God. Instead, we are to love them. That's his point here, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. He said much about love in 1 John chapter 3. Turn there if you would just quickly. 1 John 3 verse 11. Chapter 3 verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. We are to understand that truth and love are not enemies, but they are necessary for every believer. We have to hold these things in tension, how to be right and how to be kind. How to be right and how to be loving. How to be right and how to be patient. How to be right and how to be forgiving. How to be right and how to be generous with people. 
You may have as a personality type a call down fire from heaven personality. By the way, you will know that's your personality because you really don't have a lot of people who like to hang out with you. If all you're doing is judging people, if all you're doing is casting aspersions at people, if all you're doing is criticizing how bad people are, how wrong people are, if that's all you're doing, it's not winsome, it's not attractive, it's not even righteous. The fact is we live in a broken world and there are broken people everywhere. In fact, I'm looking at a room full of them. And if I had a mirror, I'd look at one more. So how do you hold truth and love in tension? Well, it's a hard thing, isn't it? It's impossible if you don't know Christ. Because this is the proof of Christianity that you love one another. So if you don't know Christ, how could you have the proof of Christ if you don't know Christ? But if you do have Christ, it needs to be something that you aspire to and that you work toward and that you take no exceptions with. You don't give yourself a pass because that person is hard or that person is harder or that person is hardest in my life to love. You don't get any exceptions. You don't get out of jail free card with Jesus. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the level of your brokenness. If you will die to self, if you will humble yourself before the Lord God and say, God, help me to love, I can love. I can love the hardest. I can love the most difficult. I can love the ones that are the least like me, that least appeal to me. I can love them. Not at the expense of truth, but I can hold truth and love in such tension because I am a follower of Christ that I can say, listen, brother, this is right. I love you, and your behavior is wrong, but I love you. We struggle with this because so many people want their behavior to define them. You can't say you love me if you don't agree with my behavior. Well, of course I can. We're just negotiating on which behavior you want to make an idol out of. Nobody in this room or anybody outside of this room would say that if somebody commits murder, that we would somehow excuse them and say, well, that's, I love you and I love you, even though you've committed murder, I'm, I'm okay even with that. No, I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to love your behavior because murder is murder. All of us will acknowledge the seriousness and the gravity of that taking a human life. But then... Stepping back from that, we, we reach a line, an imaginary line, where we say, well, this is my behavior, and if you love me, you have to accept my behavior. No, I don't. Jesus didn't. He told the woman at the well, you've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You're currently 0 for 6. That's not righteous. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. No, duh. Jesus is a prophet. 
Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. He's the son of Almighty God. And Jesus didn't just let people walk or skate with their behavior, and neither will we. But understand, Jesus loved that woman. Loved that woman. And their friend is our rub. How do we say to people, I love you, but I will not compromise on truth? Well, you must. You must because Jesus did it, and you must because his disciples did it. And there is no better example of that than the Apostle John, because John lived the longest life of all of them. And John was a son of thunder who comes to the end of his life and says, let us love one another because love is of God. So truth and love are not enemies, but they are required of every believer. I trust today if you don't know Christ, you will come to Christ. And if you know Christ, you will leave here pursuing Christ all the more and stop making excuses for not pursuing him all the more. Let us glory in Christ together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your tender mercies. We ask for your kindness in helping us to follow you well, to follow you according to your scriptures, and to be greatly encouraged. I pray, God, for your help today in our weakness and our failure. Help us, I pray. Help us turn to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me remind you.